please remain standing for the reading of God's word this morning. We begin our series in the book of Esther. So we'll start with Esther chapter 1. Esther is in the Old Testament, nestled between Nehemiah and Job. Esther chapter 1. Now in the days of Ahasuerus, the Ahasuerus who reigned from India to Ethiopia over 127 provinces, in those days when King Ahasuerus sat on his royal throne in Susa, the citadel, in the third year of his reign, he gave a feast for all his officials and servants. The army of Persia and Media and the nobles and governors of the provinces were before him, while he showed the riches of his royal glory and the splendor and pomp of his greatness for many days. 180 days. And when these days were completed, the king gave for all the people present in Susa the citadel, both great and small, a feast lasting for seven days in the court of the garden of the king's palace. And there were white cotton curtains and violet hangings fastened with cords of fine linen and purple to silver rods and marble pillars and also couches of gold and silver on a mosaic pavement of porphyry, marble, mother of pearl, and precious stones. Drinks were served in golden vessels, vessels of different kinds, and the royal wine was lavished according to the bounty of the king. And drinking was according to this edict. There is no compulsion. For the king had given orders to all the staff of his palace to do as each man desired. Queen Vashti also gave a feast for the women in the palace that belonged to King Ahasuerus. On the seventh day, when the heart of the king was merry with wine, he commanded Mahuman, Biztha, Harbona, Bigtha, and Abagtha, Zethar, and Carcass, the seven eunuchs who served in the presence of King Ahasuerus, to bring Queen Vashti before the king with her royal crown in order to show the peoples and the princes her beauty, for she was lovely to look at. But Queen Vashti refused to come at the king's command delivered by the eunuchs. At this, the king became enraged. And his anger burned within him. Then the king said to the wise men who knew the times, for this was the king's procedure toward all who were versed in law and judgment, the men next to him being Karshena, Shethar, Admatha, Tarshish, Meres, Marsena, and Mamukin, the seven princes of Persia and Media, who saw the king's face and sat first in the kingdom. According to the law, what is to be done to Queen Vashti because she has not performed the, king, the command of King Ahasuerus delivered by the eunuchs? Then Mamukin said in the presence of the king and the officials, not only against the king has Queen Vashti done wrong, but also against all the officials and all the peoples who are in all the provinces of King Ahasuerus. For the queen's behavior will be made known to all women, causing them to look at their husbands with contempt, since they will say King Ahasuerus commanded Queen Vashti to be brought before him, and she did not come. This very day, the noble women of Persia and Media who have heard of the queen's behavior will say the same to all the king's officials, and there will be contempt and wrath in plenty. If it please the king, let a royal order go out from him, and let it be written among the laws of the Persians and the Medes, so that it may never be repealed, that Vashti is never again to come before King Ahasuerus. And let the king give her royal position to another who is better than she. And so when the decree, so when the decree made by the king is proclaimed throughout all his kingdom... For it is vast, all women will give honor to their husbands, high and low alike. This advice pleased the king and the princes, and the king did as Mamukin proposed. He sent letters to all the royal provinces, to every province in its own script, and to every people in its own language, that every man be master in his own household and speak according to the language of his people. 
That's God's word for his people today. You may be seated. And now let's pray once again and ask for God's help. So, Father, all the scriptures are given to us so that we might see how you are uniting all things under your Son, our Lord and King Jesus' feet. And that because you have promised to do so, nothing can fail in your purposes. Not one of them will be unaccomplished. No earthly king can match your glory. No worldly power can stop you from accomplishing every one of your purposes. And so as we turn to your word this day, we pray that in these few verses and in our short time together, you would give us eyes to see the true glory of the splendor of your king, kingdom and our king, Jesus, so that we might live for his glory alone, we pray. Amen. When I was in college, uh, MTV premiered its show, Cribs, a celebrity guided you through their mansion and lavish lifestyle uh, every week. And every week, it seemed like the stars were playing the game who had the biggest house, the largest garage with the most cars, the coolest toys, or who had the most ridiculous thing money could buy. Now, maybe that is a little bit later in your time, so maybe you never saw an episode of Cribs, but perhaps you know a show called Lifestyles of the Rich and Famous with Robin Leitch, you know, as he guided viewers in the 1980s through extravagant homes and glamorous lifestyles. And no doubt, Robin's British accent made everything seem a bit more opulent. And even today, as we drive around Oakland County, we'll see an enormous house, which usually is followed by the inevitable ooh or ah, and sometimes just a simple whoa. Because wealth and luxury elicit that type of reaction, especially in our Western world, because every one of us is searching for the good life. And our Western world is so materialistic that even if you ultimately know fame and riches won't satisfy, there's a level of wealth that's so impressive that it, you can't help but be tempted to believe that if you had that, then you've made it. Everything's going to be okay. You have the good life. You've arrived. Everything is yours. And this battle to define the good life, though, by what we have, isn't just a modern issue. It's a human nature issue. We're all longing for this. And what will finally bring what we all long for? And the Bible's consistent answer from Genesis to Revelation is what will bring the good life are not things, but a person, a son who will make all things new, uh, whose kingdom will be righteous and just and joyful, a king whose reign will never end and it will be over all. And so throughout the pages of Scripture, from its very first pages, we're longing for who will finally bring this all together. Where is the son we all long for? Where is this king and his kingdom? And we begin our time in the book of Esther today, which opens with an impressive kingdom. First, an impressive kingdom. Verses 1 to 9 read like an ancient episode of Cribs. 
displaying the lifestyle of the rich and powerful King Ahasuerus, also known as Xerxes. He's the son of Darius, and he ruled from 486 to 465 BC over pretty much the entire known world. He ruled everywhere except for Greece. Uh, His kingdom was so vast it had four capitals, one of which was Susa, which was on the Iran-Iraq border about 150 miles north of the Persian Gulf. And the citadel of Susa uh, sat just outside the city on a hill about 70 feet high with a two-mile wall surrounding it. And at its center uh, of the palace was this garden portico. It it, uh, allowed the wind to pass through it to give relief uh, in the desert heat. So after dazzling us with the impressive size of this kingdom, the entire known world, uh, verse 3 then describes an impressive feast Ahasuerus throws. And the occasion for this six-month feast is to show off the king's impressive wealth to his military leaders, his nobles, and the governors of every province. Uh, This is just before uh, Ahasuerus is going to go try and conquer Greece. And so he's bringing together the entire known world to show off how great he is, how powerful he is, how wealthy he is to kind of unite the kingdom behind him. And imagine then this six-month-long feast is, is more like a, a, a six-month-long red carpet for the world's VIPs arriving, except it's not just one night uh, of the Academy handing out its awards. It's not just one night where the world gets to see. It's six months of the parade of the world's VIPs coming. And when that ends, if that wasn't enough, Then Ahasuerus throws a seven-day party in the palace for every man in Susa. What what we're meant to see is, yes, uh, Ahasuerus is the world's most powerful man. He rolls with the rich and famous. But don't be mistaken, he's also a man of the people. This party's for everyone, both great and small. And all of Susa's women are hosted in their feast by Queen Vashti. And the description of this party in verses 6 to 8 blows away any episode of the lifestyles of the rich and famous. There were white cotton curtains and violet hangings fastened with cords of fine linen and purple to silver rods and marble pillars and also couches of gold and silver on a mosaic pavement of porphyry, marble, mother of pearl, and precious stones. Drinks were served in golden vessels, vessels of different kinds. And the royal wine was lavished according to the king's bounty. And drinking was according to this edict. There is no compulsion. For the king had given orders to all the staff of his palace to do as each man desired. They were walking on floors of jewels and pearls. And they sat on golden furniture. The king opened his royal wine cellar and served the best of the best, and the poorest of Susa drank from their very own golden goblet. It was a sign of wealth to not have one glass match another. It, it was in their culture, that's the sign of wealth. Some of you like that. Some of you hate it when things don't match. Others of you go thrifting so that you can have nothing match in your entire house. And much like that, it was a sign of wealth that nothing was the same. He could have individually unique golden goblets made at his behest. And not only did he have a lot of them, he had enough for the entire city to have their own golden goblet. I mean, when I have lots of people over, I put out plastic Solo cups and a Sharpie 
because I don't want to pay for you to have a second plastic cup, right? But when you roll with a Hazarus, the world's at your fingertips. It's, it, can, it can all be yours, unless you're a servant in the palace, right? This party is not for everyone, even though it's for everyone. And then in a final act of impressive power and wealth, Ahasuerus enacted a law for this week-long feast. Everyone can drink as much as they want, for there is no compulsion. There's no last call. There's no bartender cutting you off. And not only that, the drinks are on the house. Verses 1 to 9 present the extravagant wealth of an unrivaled king of the world's most impressive kingdom. If you throw your lot in with Ahasuerus, the good life can be yours. And for the Jews in Susa, that was a very tempting proposition. A hundred years earlier, God used Babylon to exile them for their sin. And then Ahasuerus' grandfather, Cyrus, allowed them to return to Jerusalem in 538 B.C. But some of them didn't, which is why there are some Jews still in Susa, which we'll get to in the coming weeks. But wherever God's people lived, their lives were dominated by the world's most impressive kingdom. They lived their life in the shadow of Persian power. This is what one author says. He says, In their world, God was silent. But they could hear the sounds spilling down the western mount of Susa when the king threw his banquet in his royal gardens. In their world, God seemed absent. But the Persian political and military machines seemed almost ubiquitous everywhere. In their world, they could look up to heaven. But they could only see the royal Acropolis in Susa looking back down on them and casting a long shadow upon their lives. And when all you can see is the world, then it seems there's no choice but to go along with it. But this impressive kingdom is not all it seems, as we see, secondly, the imitating kingdom. The imitating kingdom. There's a reason this king and kingdom seem so impressive. It seems to dazzle our eyes, tug at our heartstrings. It imitates what God created us for and what we lost when Adam and Eve rebelled against God. And in Adam, Romans 5 tells us, we rebelled too, and God exiled sinners from his presence. And then in the following chapters of Genesis, humanity tries to get back to God through their own wisdom and strength. And that attempts, those attempts culminate in Genesis 11 with the building of the Tower of Babel where they tried to reach heaven. If God won't dwell with us, well, then we'll get ourselves back to him. But God couldn't even see the tower for heaven, so he had to come down and look at it to see what they were doing. And then he thwarted that attempt and scattered humanity across the earth. But instead of humbling ourselves, humanity began trying to make heaven on earth apart from God then. Well, we can't get back to God? Fine, we'll make heaven on earth without him. And over and over throughout the Old Testament, we see these attempts to get back to heaven ourselves or make heaven on earth apart from God. But Esther serves to reveal that even the world's most impressive kingdoms are mere imitations. They're just play acting for the real thing. Listen to Psalm 47. It says this, God reigns over the nations. God sits on his holy throne. The princes, or that's the same word for nobles, of the peoples gather. And what do we find at the beginning of Esther? 
Well, a king sitting on the throne, reigning over most of the known world, with nobles gathering around him. But what do we already know? There's at least a few provinces he hasn't conquered, namely Greece. He might say he's king of the world, but he's not even really that. And then listen to Isaiah 2, verse 2, and see if you notice any imitations. It shall come to pass in the latter days that the, mount, that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains and shall be lifted up above the hills and all the nations shall flow to it. Well, Esther opens with a king sitting on his throne upon, in a citadel that's up on a hill and the nation's flowing into it for a six-month banquet. But that citadel is no more. You can go online and see the most recent excavation of it. And as soon as this king's reign ended, which it did, the nations of the world began to flow elsewhere. Or how about the garden at the center of the palace and its lavish description? The only other garden in the Old Testament that gets this much detail uh, is the garden God planted in Eden, where God wanted to dwell with his people and gave them every tree of the fruit of the garden to eat except of one. And in God's garden, though there was that one tree you couldn't eat from, but what, what do we hear about Ahasuerus' decree? Well, in his garden, there are no rules. You are God. Anything you want can be yours. And God's dwelling place throughout the Old Testament was the tabernacle and then the temple. And if you read the descriptions of the tabernacle and the temple in Ezekiel or in Deuteronomy or throughout uh, other places in the Old Testament, they are given extensive garden imagery throughout. And the temple's floor was gold. And all these parallels contrast God and his temple and garden and banquet for his people with Ahasuerus and his palace and garden and banquet for his people. We're all longing for the good life, but who can truly give it to us? And the question Esther begins to ask us at the very beginning is who is truly king? Who deserves our allegiance and worship? Who will finally bring the kingdom we all long for? Uh, in high school, my youth pastor led me on my first overseas mission, mission trip to uh, Sao Paulo, Brazil. And after one of the morning uh, ministry times, uh, we ate lunch and then we went to a market. And I saw a pair of Oakleys uh, that were the coolest thing to have uh, when I was in high school, um, but were way beyond my pay grade being in high school. Uh, and then I saw them there, like with a light from heaven shining upon them, and angels singing, ah, oh, here's your Oakleys. And I thought, I wonder if my American dollar would go very far in Brazil, and maybe I can finally get these sunglasses. Uh, and you can imagine my surprise when I didn't need a good dollar value, uh, because they were just $15, not $150. And so I grabbed the missionary in my excitement and asked him to, well, not really asked him, I dragged him over and said, help me buy my first pair of Oakleys. Uh, but before he did, he got this sly smile on his face and then began to introduce me to the world of knockoffs. <laughs> he pointed me to the logo on the, whatever that thing's called, the ear thingy, and uh, to the logo on it. And I saw for the first time that they weren't Oakleys, but Orleys. 
I mean, the logo was almost identical except for that one little white line that made the K and R. And the style was spot on. Uh, but they weren't the real deal. Now, I bought them anyways, right? Hoping no one would know uh, or be any the wiser or maybe get like a black Sharpie and make them Oakleys when I got home. But I always knew they weren't the real thing. And Esther opens with all the world's values on impressive display, but it's just an imitation of the real thing when you look a little more closely. The problem is it's just one thing to wear a pair of fake sunglasses. It's quite another to give your allegiance to a knockoff kingdom, which is why verses 10 through 11 reveal this impressive imitating kingdom is thirdly an impotent kingdom, an impotent kingdom. On the last day of the Susa banquet, Ahasuerus drunkly commands Queen Vashti to be brought in her royal headdress to the garden to show the peoples and the princes her beauty, for she was lovely to look at. Now, Ahasuerus wants everyone to see how great he truly is, right? That's what he's been doing for 187 days. He's been putting on the splendor and pomp of his greatness. He wants everyone to say how great he truly is. And his grand finale after 187 days of showing off just how great he is is to parade his wife in front of a city full of drunk men so that they can lust over her and wish they were him. But in a shocking turn of events, Queen Vashti refuses the most powerful man of the world's most impressive kingdom. And the king in all his glory really isn't as glorious as he seems. Now, we aren't told why she refuses, uh, only that she refused to come at the king's command. And as we go through this book in the coming weeks, we must let God's word be our guide. If we don't, we'll see things that aren't there, we'll make assertions that aren't grounded in the text, and we'll make applications that moralize the Bible rather than staying faithful to it. And so while it makes for interesting sermons to wonder why Vashti refused and then to begin to tell you why she refused, like, it was her dignity, or she did not want to be his sex object anymore, or she was tired of only being invited into his presence when he felt like it. I mean, why? Why? Was it, was it some of those things? Those are all fair questions. The problem is they're not questions this book wants to answer. Those aren't questions this book asks. So if I answer those questions, I'm really just guessing. And anyone else who tells you anything other than what the Bible says is just guessing, or that at least can show you from Scripture, they're just, they're just guessing. And guessing, uh, guessing pastors or teachers actually just reveal more about themselves and their worldview than they reveal anything about Vashti. And even, even worse than that, guessing in sermons uh, lead to a moralizing of God's word that lacks the power of the Holy Spirit. And the point of then verses like that are, don't be like a hazardous. Well, obviously, right? <laughs> but that's not the point. And, and sermons that make that the point then put the onus on you. You, you do it and you don't do this. Don't be like a hazardous. Or be like Vashti, even if it costs you Everything. And neither of which are the point of Vashti's refusal. If you read the book of Esther from beginning to end, 
we have to see that her refusal is revealed throughout the course of the entire book. Her refusal at first is just meant to be so shocking in the face of the greatness that we were just dazzled with, how unimpressive, really, King Ahasuerus is. He's got all the world at his fingertips, yet a single no brings all his pomp to a screeching halt. His power is not absolute in spite of him being over 127 world provinces. Vashti's refusal exposes the fragility of what the world holds out to us as the good life. For 187 days, the pomp of worldly greatness is on dazzling display. And then a single no from the basement of the palace ends everything. Vashti's refusal reveals the folly of pursuing the good life in fragile things. And we then begin to see that her refusal sheds light on the most well-known issue in the book of Esther. God isn't mentioned once. Ahasuerus is mentioned 190 times in 167 verses. But there's not one word or action attributed to God. And we'll dive more into that in the coming weeks as well. But for now, Vashti's refusal is just another one of chapter one's dominoes falling in God's plan to remove one king from her position so God can accomplish his purpose through another. And that God even uses Ahasuerus' greed, lust, and pride to accomplish his glorious purposes. Vashti refuses in order to let us see the truth of Proverbs 21.1 on display. This is what it says. The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. The king's heart is just a stream of water in God's hand. He turns it wherever he will. So we may not see God's hand of providence at work. We're definitely not told it's at work directly in Esther. But that doesn't mean it isn't there. God isn't mentioned in Esther, but Ahasuerus is a stream of water in God's hand, which Vasti's refusal begins to reveal. And so, fourthly, the irate king. The irate king. When Vashti refused his command, Ahasuerus became enraged and his anger burned within him. And in this irate state, we begin to see who Ahasuerus truly is. He is impulsive and acts with comedic irony. I mean, the most powerful man in the world begins to act like a child who doesn't get his way. Vashti doesn't want to be in my presence. That's fine, I didn't want her in my presence anyways. And I don't want to see her ever again either. And the king's advisors are worried that everyone will hear about her insubordination. And so they tell everyone in the empire about her insubordination. He spends 187 days showing off his power, trying to convince everyone how truly great he is, how powerful he is. But here he just reveals to everyone how limited his power really is. His own wife doesn't follow his decree, yet they're all going to write a decree for every wife in the kingdom to follow. This is the world's wisdom and strength on display. And at the center of it all is a king 
with a fragile ego. A king who uses everything at his disposal to dazzle with the mirage of his glory and splendor. He's a king who, when it really comes down to it, exists only to serve himself. And Esther 1 begins with a dazzling display of a king and his kingdom. The pinnacle of earthly wealth and power and splendor. But in the end, all it shows is what our world defines as the good life really isn't all that good after all. This king and kingdom have everything this world has to offer, but it doesn't have anything at all. And so as Esther 1 closes, we're still left longing for what we've been longing for since the Garden of Eden. We've been longing for a better king who will bring a better kingdom. We're left longing for a king who rules justly and wisely. A king whose power can change us and our world. A king whose resources never run dry and whose banquet will never end and whose plans are never thwarted. A king whose commands are always for our good and whose invitations are always given in love even when we can't understand them. A king who is always for us even when we turn against him. A king who will not exile even one of his people no matter what they deserve. A king who doesn't use or abuse his bride for his own selfish ends but instead gives himself up for her. A friend that is a king, and a king who is a friend. And friends, that king is Jesus, the invincible king, the invincible king. And unlike Esther 1, the gospels don't open with the splendor of pomp and earthly power and greatness on display, but in a lowly manger. Jesus is the long-awaited son of King David, Yet he doesn't command us to come serve him. Jesus came to serve and to give his life for his people. He was despised and rejected, yet he loved his people to the end. The law demands our sin, uh, our sin demands through the law our eternal banishment from the king's presence. But instead of forsaking us, Jesus wore a crown of thorns and bore our judgment upon himself on the cross and died the death his people deserved. But since it was God's will to crush his own son in the place of his people, God vindicated Jesus because it was not his sin that he died for, and so God raised him up three days later. And this king then invincibly conquered our enemies, sin and death, once and for all. And God bestowed upon him the name given above every name, at which every knee will bow and tongue confess, and heaven on earth, above the earth and under the earth, everywhere in all creation, that Jesus Christ is the invincible Lord of all. And the opening feast of Esther has nothing on this feast of our invincible king that awaits his people. Listen to Isaiah 25. On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well-refined. 
And he, this king, will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever. And the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces. And the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth, for the Lord has spoken. I mean, the pomp of Esther 1 is undeniable. It is the world's most impressive banquet. But even that banquet came to an end. And it did so with the taste of fear lingering in everyone's mouth as the king blew his top. But Ahasuerus' feast, even though it might have had all the world could offer on its menu, didn't have the one thing we all need. In spite of all that Ahasuerus had, there was one thing he could not deliver. The death of fear and shame and even death itself. And all the power and money in the world can't remove the veil that all the nations are covered by and long, for, uh, long to be from out from under it. But when Jesus died on the cross and rose from the grave, the invincible king swallowed up death forever. And King Jesus calls us to come to him. He does call his bride to come. But unlike the king in Esther 1, Jesus doesn't call you into his presence so that you can bring him something or for you to do anything for him. That's why we sang that song this morning. He is the king in need of nothing. And yet he calls. And if he were not good and gracious, you should be worried. But because he is good and gracious and has no need of anything that we could do or offer anyways, we can come empty-handed and rejoice. He calls you into his presence, not so that you can give to him, but that he can give to you. Listen to Matthew 11. Come to me, all who weary and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart. And you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Come to me. Not if you have things I can use to further myself at your expense. But come to me, all who are weary and burdened. Everyone who is in need of everything yet has nothing. Come to me and I will give you. Friends, the good life is found in bringing the invincible king all your needs and burdens. And unlike any king of the earth, when he would be confronted with the depth of the greatness of your need, rather than sending you out of his presence, he welcomes, it, welcomes you into it. And he takes off all your weariness and your burdens, and he gives you his rest. If you hear the king calling, get up from the world's table today and find all you're longing for in his presence. And you will find the rest you've always longed for. And brothers and sisters, we live in the shadow of the world's imitating kingdoms. Sometimes it's all we can see. The news confronts us all the time with the strength of the world's power and wisdom on display. 
And sometimes it seems every time you look up longing for heaven, all you can see is the world's ubiquitous political powers casting their long shadow back down on you. But though we live in the shadow of this world's imitating kingdoms, we have nothing to fear. For our king is invincible, and his kingdom is invincible too. So even if you're in a season when you haven't seen God, you haven't heard God, you wonder if he's still there, you wonder if he's at work at all, if you wonder if he's forgotten you, remember that even when we can't see his hand at work, there's coming a day when not only you will see it, but all will see it too. Listen to what Revelation 11 says is coming. The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and his Christ. And what? And he shall reign forever and ever. Forever and ever and ever and ever, even if you don't know how today. So go out rejoicing, brothers and sisters, that our king is good and gracious and invincible. Go out rejoicing in the good news of great joy that is for all the peoples that Christ is Lord of all. Let's pray. Father, as we turn to this little Old Testament book that can sometimes confuse us with how strikingly absent you are from the surface of its pages. It can seem strikingly different than the world we live in today. We pray that as we take the next few weeks and months to journey through this book, you would reveal to us who is the true king of the true kingdom we all long for. And that we would have hearts that would trust in him alone, love him alone, worship him alone, and that our love would overflow in praise so that we would tell the nations of the world the king has come. And he has invited all the peoples of the earth to sit at his table. And so we praise you that though we deserve eternal banishment, we've been invited into the wedding feast. And we didn't have the clothes to be able to come in and attend. We were not worthy. We had nothing. Yet you clothed us in the garments needed to enter your presence. And that you are bringing a people together from all the peoples and tribes of the earth to worship around your throne. And that one day... All will see the kingdoms of the world have become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and you will reign forever and ever. And fill us with great hope in that truth, and send us out rejoicing with the good news of who this king is. For the sake of your name among our neighbors and the nations, we pray. Amen.